The Money Show. Make Money Mondays. So for the first time on this feature, we've got a real economist who's going to tell us about his attitudes towards money. You are a real economist, aren't you, Rajapedian? <laughs> Thanks very much, Bruce. <laughs> Chief Executive of Pan-African Investments and Research Services for many years, Chief Economist at Standard Bank. He's somebody who does understand how money works and what makes money happen and everything about it. And I want to try and pick his brain tonight to learn about what taught him about it. Because you were born, not here, but a long way away in a country that's very much the epicenter of uh, global geopolitics right now, and that's Iran. That's right. And I was born um, or in a very poor, uh, under-serviced uh, village. Um, so I relate to a lot of challenges that we have in South Africa. Well, what was the basis of your village economy growing up? Uh, agriculture, uh, subsistence agriculture mostly. And... Uh, some trade uh, in, in, in livestock, but uh, 90% uh, literally ex- uh, subsistence agriculture. I mean, superficially, uh, people who think of Iran think of Persian carpets, think of it as the epicenter of global civilization. Um, you, you, didn't, you don't have any of that sort of background in your family. I do. I do. Oh. My mother used to make uh, carpets uh, and uh, Bruce, believe it or not, uh, uh, for five years in my school holidays and weekends, I did also make carpets. Really? So that was absolutely. Now, take me through yeah. that process. I mean, because th- there's extraordinary self-discipline in the making of Persian carpets. There's extraordinary yep. skill and the artistic value of doing it. It's a, it's a blend of art and, um, and skills in terms of <clears throat> a lot of chemical engineering, in terms of uh, dye, uh, in, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of the wool and and the threads and the cutters and the looms. It's a fairly complex Mm. uh, industry and, of course, a great deal of art. A great deal. I mean, so so, so what carpets were you making? I mean, what region were you in? Um, I come from the central uh, north, and that's uh, Kashan, uh, which is um, the the base of uh, Kashan carpets, well-known. And uh, it's a specific pattern uh, and Primarily wool, not silk. Okay, so wool carpets then. I mean, right. do you have them in your home today? Do you? Do you I do. You do? I mean, I carpets that you've made? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. As a child, I didn't <laughs> count them. Uh, I didn't like them at all because it was child labor more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, but today I have uh, three of my mother's last pieces uh, before she, she stopped or was unable to make anymore. Okay, I'm, I've Googled them and they're beautiful. Yeah, they are. I can, see your, I can see your handiwork. I, I can. <laughs> I think I think I've seen one that you you were involved in. I mean, but, I mean, but but it, it must have taught you a particular set of values in terms of a commitment to detail, a commitment to hard work. Those those sorts of those sorts of details, and as well as those that you mentioned, the the consequences of mistakes. Uh, a Persian carpet, like any piece of art, um, you make mistakes, you you downgrade it very very quickly. So uh, not only hard work, but hard work with precision, not occasionally, all the time. And there's extra. I mean, they're very, very detailed. I mean, many there's there's some Persian carpets that are less detailed. Kashan carpets, as I, I see in front of me now, are extraordinarily fine. The, the work that, is very, very fine. That's correct. Which means that the cost of making mistakes is very, very high. Mm. Uh, and the car- the master carpet maker cannot afford to put up with you if you're not <laughs> all the time there. Is that why you did it only for five years? 
Well, I did all the holidays. I didn't have chance, but also it's a very taxing, physically taxing sure. type of uh, work uh, because not only it, it, you got to be focused, but also physically your muscles, your back, your fingers. Uh, it's a very, very demanding um, t- type of work. And for a child, it was quite tough. I'm sure. But yeah. as you sat in your holidays, your mum clearly was, was involved in the manufacture of these mm. carpets. It's a, it's a laborious process. It's a slow process. And typically of works of art like this, uh, the, the manufacturer, the producer, the artist isn't the one who makes the money. Uh, interesting. The traders make more money than the manufacturers. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the, the nature of the, that particular market. Uh, and, and pretty much as I've followed it, this has remained the same. The manufacturers are still are at the bottom of the value chain, and uh, they do not make that much of a margin. The traders uh, and wholesalers far more. Mm. So, what, what I mean, when you're growing up and you and you are are working in your school holidays, what's your earliest memory of money? I mean, clearly life was pretty tough: subsistence agriculture, livestock. You, you mm. I mean, were you were you making your own yarns and your own threads as well, or were, were those no, brought in? No, those were bought. They bought from other villages and other manufacturing centers. Uh, where I was, it was more manufacturing of the carpets. Uh, and of course, agriculture. The, the, the earliest memories of money for me was eight, nine, where uh, I realized the family didn't have money because my shoes were uh, torn. It was cold, the winter, uh, frozen, freezing cold, and they couldn't afford new shoes. So I was going to school with holy shoes, as they called them. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, the first time that I realized when there is no money, welfare is, is, is suffering. Um, and so, I mean, was mom the, the principal breadwinner? No, my dad, uh, and both of them, in fact, uh, the the life in that, at that level of uh, income or poverty, whatever, however you look at it, is that unless both parties work, um, you can't uh, cover the expenses of the family. Mm. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, so, was money a stress in your home? It was, uh, up until well into my university years. Uh, it, it, I pretty much had to uh, work my way through my university days, uh, get a job part-time in the afternoon from 4 to 9, uh, and then go home 9 o'clock and study. That was the only way I could uh, make ends meet. Did, did your parents stress about money? I mean, was it, was it a, a, a topic of, of, of fraught discussion? Not really, not a stress. It was a reality that we accepted. Mm-hmm. We grew up with it. Uh, there is a real budget constraints, and uh, dad decides uh, what priorities are. And uh, for him, our education uh, was number one, and apart from subsistence. Um, and he was a very good money manager in that sense, making the best of limited resources that he had. I mean, in Iran at the time, was education on the state, or did it have to be privately funded? It was fully public, uh, almost no private schooling, uh, and uh, I was lucky enough that I sort of entered university when the oil price was shut up at the early <laughs> 1970s, and Iran was, uh, relatively speaking, floating in cash, and mm-hmm. the government put uh, education as number one priority, so education at the university levels were highly subsidized, and if your mar- grades were good, then you would get a subs- not only a subsidy, you would also get a bursary. So you can imagine the competition was high to to make it into 75% and above, then you have almost free education as far as tuition is concerned. But of course, you have to still pay for your uh, living.
Um, when when did you earn your first money? I mean, did, were you paid as a youngster for, for making the carpets or was that just part of the household chores like doing the dishes? Yeah, that was, yeah, that was household chore. But first money I earned in my first year of university. Um, I realized that if I wanted to to be able to study and buy my textbooks and additional material that I needed, I had to take a job and I do it. From four to nine, um, I took my first job and I was very proud of uh, getting my first paycheck. What was that first job? <laughs> um, I was an administrative assistant into a um, English college that was doing extramural English uh, tutoring, teaching, and I was doing the admin work. Where, where, where did you learn English? I mean, Iran was a was a very international country at the time. I mean, it, it, it was um, the, the part of the, the the social set, wasn't it? I mean, it was a very open society. Absolutely, it was open, and English uh, was part of high school, but at very very elementary level. So we, I learned my elementary English, uh, literally by elementary, I mean elementary, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, supplemented it with uh, extramural studies. But I really began to learn English when I came to Cape Town in 1980 and registered for honors. Then I realized I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but what, 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 what an extraordinary leap, though, to come to South Africa. Of course, Iran was in turmoil by then. Yes. Yeah, right. um, uh, and that brought you to South Africa and you then had to learn a whole new language in which to study in a, in a field that you were learning. That's right. It was an extraordinary, when I look back, um, a parallel challenge of one learning English and then doing economics honors. Um, and economics itself as a discipline in South Africa is taught very differently from what we were taught uh, in Iran those days. Our, our courses were highly mathematical and quantitative. Mm-hmm. South Africa was largely p- uh, descriptive and uh, very little maths and, and stats. So uh, that meant English was far more important uh, for being able to to read volumes and understand and then write exams as opposed to doing maths, which was much simpler. Much simpler. Dr. Rajabedian, <laughs> Chief Executive at Pan-African Investments and Research Services, telling us a wonderful story about his early life in Iran, growing up, making carpets um, as part of the family chores, and then making his way to Cape Town. Lots more to talk about in just a moment. Ever- the Money Show. Make Money Mondays. Dr. Rajabedian is my guest, a well-known South African economist. He's South African now. Um, when did you then get a, your first proper job? I mean, you worked in admin in <laughs> Iran. Um, you, because by 1980, you, you weren't a spring chicken anymore, were you? No, I was 20, uh, 22. Okay. Um, after my graduation, I, I had three jobs. Uh, I continued with my admin work and... Uh, then uh, I became, by that time I was graduated as, as, as an economist, as a young economist, and I got my research uh, in an organization called ISEC, which is International Student yes. Exchange Program, uh, and was a part of the national executive of ISEC in Iran, um, did a lot of uh, uh, work in that area. And then I took a job as a researcher at the Commercial Attaches Office of South Africa. Uh, and there I, be, I got to, to know about the South African economy, South African business structures, and obviously the politics of South Africa. Uh, and you still came? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still learning. Um, you know, but we're all learning all the time, and I think that's yeah. what, what's, what's so wonderful about the world and the age in which we live. Um, yes. you, you arrive in South Africa as, as a young student. You, you've got to make ends meet. At what point did you join Standard Bank then? Because you did rise quite quickly then through the ranks to become the group economist there. Yes, no, I, I worked my way at UCT as a professor of economics uh, up until 79, and then uh, I was lucky I was invited or headhunted, whatever the term, by Standard Bank. Okay. Uh, and the exciting part of that uh, position was the fact that, as you recall, NetBank had a fairly hostile bid on Standard yes. Bank, and uh, and that was a good time to be in Standard Bank. As an economist, you get uh, very seldom an opportunity to, to defend a, a bank against another bank and go to the whole uh, economic argument for... Uh, no takeover or no consolidation and rather uh, more players in the market. So I enjoyed that. And when when did you start sort of taking money seriously in your personal capacity in terms of investing money and looking toward a, uh, an uncertain future as, as somebody we, we all got to stop working at some point. Um, yeah. When did you start thinking about it seriously? I think it, when I was senior lecturer in economics just mid-1980s um, and uh, sorry, mid-1990s and early 1990s and, and I started saying, look, I'm getting on and I need to to worry about uh, savings and it's for the f- future and I, money became the focus of uh, sort of uh, professional investment uh, learning for me uh, and of course uh, I had a, a blend of uh, whatever savings I could I could master. Um, some of it I was doing it myself, and some of it I gave to the institutions to manage. And uh, and when when you did that, I mean, did you make sensible decisions, or did you make some mistakes along the way? Uh, yes, I did make mistakes. Uh, one of the mistakes was to to give money to the institutions. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a big mistake, retrospectively. Uh, but that was the best uh, information I had at that time. Uh, but of course, even my own judgment, some of it didn't come right. But on average, uh, maybe by luck, um, I was uh, more focused on getting results than what institutions got for mm-hmm. me. And that was one of the key drivers of uh, when I left the Standard Bank going into to private equity investment because I realized there is a great deal of opportunities in the marketplace where uh, private equity was very attractive for me. Have you made any dud investments, any ones that you regret fundamentally? Not big ones. One or two bits are put in in particular positions which were pretty uh, sort of unattractive from a return point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I but didn't you had no disasters. My... Being pretty unattractive from a return point of view sounds like a euphemism. No, but <laughs> look, some of them, not really, I haven't lost money, okay. so to speak, if that's Ooh, what you're looking That's good. But uh, some of them uh, ended up having 2-3%, and which is not the right thing. Uh, but then most of them are, have done extremely well. How do you approach an investment? I mean, as an economist, as somebody who is trained in finding every possible pitfall, for most mm. of us, we wouldn't be able to see the wood for the trees. How do you look through what's opportunity versus risk? 
I, I look at the structure of the economy, uh, not today, but the, the trend line as it's going in the next 10 years or so. Remember, private equity is about seven to 10 year uh, futuristic mm-hmm. horizon. You're taking a position on the company, not today, but where the company could and should be. Uh, and then uh, that means an understanding of the uh, of the structure of the economy, then within the economy, the sector, within the sector, the industry, and within the industry, the team that you're investing in. Um, so I've developed... Uh, a fairly uh, systematic uh, way coming from my economics training um, to to identify opportunities. Um, do you have extravagances? I mean, we know you like Persian carpets, but those no. are a necessity, so those aren't yeah, Exactly. <laughs> those are necessity. Those are more memories of the past. But not, not really. I don't believe in... Um, uh, in um, using resources for extravagant ends. Um, I obviously spend a lot of money on uh, on books, uh, on concepts these days, on on softwares that provide information and and converts data into knowledge, uh, and I enjoy that. So that's my. Do you not have a strategy. single weakness? Sorry. Do you not have a single weakness? Yeah, a lot of weaknesses, but no, no, uh, but I mean financial not, weakness, not financial weakness. No, not really. No, no. I, I, I firmly believe that money should be used for um, social things, for for productive things. When I do have extra money over and above what I do, I I sponsor students to uh, to for their education, uh, the ones that I I can afford, um, and uh, contribute to to various uh, educational programs. For me, that's what my my passion is. Uh, and that gives me a great deal of satisfaction, much more than driving a Ferrari. How much is enough, Iraj? Um, depends what you want to do with it. For your mm-hmm. living, uh, you don't need a, a lot, uh, but for your passions and for things that you love to do, um, the more the merrier. As long as you stay focused and not uh, uh, be in a way, sucked into the materialist side. As long as you don't use the radar that money is only a means of uh, creating whatever you, you, you aspire to create, uh, no more and no less. Dr. Arashabedian, what a privilege, what a pleasure, and I thank you so much for sharing some of your insights. And I've learned so much about you this evening and from you tonight. So thank, thank you very much for coming in. Arashabedian, the thank Chief Executive much. at Pan-African Investments and Research Services. What a fascinating story.